art on your sleeve. Hello, welcome to Art on Your Sleeve, episode 15. Before I get into what's happening in this episode, I'd just like to say thank you as usual to everyone who commented on the last episode of Art on Your Sleeve, which was a bit of an unusual special mini edition where I talked about one song, Being Boring by the Pet Shop Boys. I got a lot of really positive feedback about that episode and people have asked whether I'll be doing other similar episodes about other songs by the Pet Shop Boys or other artists and the answer is at this stage I don't know, maybe, who knows what's going to happen in the future. If you want to stay up to date with what's going on in the podcast, the Facebook group is growing in numbers. Just search for Art on Your Sleeve podcast on Facebook and join in. It's a friendly and very... um, educational group so you'll probably learn a lot i certainly have this episode is a supplement to a pop art article i wrote for classic pop magazine about simon halfen it was issue 27 and it was published in february 2017 if you want to find it back then i interviewed simon for the magazine and we couldn't really cover everything because of the the usual word count limitations but in this episode we've certainly filled in those gaps and gone right through his whole book which he's just published which we talk about in the episode so finally we get to sort of give a full career overview of Simon's work. One last thing that I need to mention is that about 10 minutes into this conversation we're joined by Simon's dog Buddy who uh, wants to get his voice heard so I apologize for the barking but it unfortunately overlapped with some interesting things that Simon said so I couldn't edit it out but um, it all adds to the personality of the podcast sit back and enjoy and to find out more information about the things we talk about check out the show notes at softoctopus.co.uk Hi, Simon. Thanks for joining me at the Art on Your Sleeve podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. This is um, a follow-up, really, to an article that we put together for Classic Pop magazine, which I felt was about two years ago, but it was nearly four years ago now that we did that article. Four years ago, wow. I'd like to say time flies when you're having fun, but this year hasn't been much fun for any of us, really. The time, you know, sadly, time has flown by. You know, even my kids say, my God, it's Thursday now, it's Friday again. And it's bizarre how, I think it's when you're not doing anything different that it just wisps, you know, whisks by. But you've been very busy because you've published a book. In fact, you must have, did you start this just near the start of lockdown or have you yeah, had this in production? Yeah, well, it was quite a way into lockdown, actually. Um, I'd got involved uh in a couple of Tim Burgess's Twitter listening parties. Yes. Um, I think, I can't remember when they were, but they were sort of fairly early on in lockdown and they were two for the Style Council, one for Cafe Blur and one for our favorite shop. And in preparation for the, the playback, I dug out a few old bits and pieces and uh, you know, scanned them and got them ready for the, for the uh, listening party. And the reaction was so great, and it was just great, so great to hear those records again. I hadn't heard those records you know, for the best part of 40 years, really. And, um, uh, you know, in their entirety from start to finish. And it was just great to sort of feel, you know, there was so much love for, for, for the Star Council. And yeah. it just, you know, loads of people said, oh, you should do a book, you should do a book. So, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of, at that point, decided to sort out my archives. I knew I'd kept everything, but it was just question where everything was and once I kind of looked through it all I thought well, you know perhaps there is enough here for a book and I kind of tested the water by putting it on Kickstarter I thought that was the best way to try and do it and it met its target within six hours which kind of blew me away which is fantastic and so and the book came out um, a week ago now so um, and it seems to be there you know, I say it very well received people seem to you know you can tell very quickly in these days because as soon as people get something, they put it on some social media or other, and they, there's a great deal of fondness for it, which is fantastic, which is very flattering. What I was particularly impressed about with the book was that it's not just a bog-standard catalogue of your work. It's it's quite autobiographical, isn't it? 
yeah, I, I wanted it to feel personal. And so I guess by, by putting a few snaps in that people hadn't seen uh, over the years, that kind of takes it away from being catalogue-like. But I also wanted to put some, a few little anecdotes and just kind of tell the story because it's kind of four decades of my sort of working career and it just felt that it it would work well to have some stories in there um just to sort of fill in a few blanks i guess and i think that's you know that that's what i'm pleased has really worked because people the reaction to that has been so positive that people really appreciate that knowing the kind of backstories to some of the sleeves and a little bit more about me and you know, it's very flattering, obviously. <laughs> what I particularly liked as well was seeing um, those sketches and ideas, you know, those the, the pre-ideas that come before the actual artwork's done, you know, particularly some of the drawings that Paul Well has done himself and stuff. That's getting that sort of seeing behind the curtains always really interesting. You know, as a designer myself, I always find that fascinating to see how something could have been compared to how it actually ended up. No, I, I love all that. And Paul was a sort of a voracious uh, note and sketch drawer. And, um, and in many cases, you know, he had the idea for the sleeve before he'd recorded the record. So there'd always be some little sketch. Um, and I kept all that stuff. And it just seemed like a nice time to sort of share it, really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm fascinated by that stuff as well. Not not my side of this, but, you know, when I see... You know other artists and other designers and you see the kind of the background or in some cases where you see the contact sheet and you see the frame before and the frame after yes, yeah. you know i love all that um so yeah so i wanted to give it sort of a tiny bit of insight as well into how these things come about yeah um, normally when when i do these podcasts it's, I, I, I would go to people's studios and sort of you know you'd be surrounded by all of this all of their artwork and ephemera and things. It's always fascinating when designers open up these boxes with all of these sketches in and rejected yeah. photographs and, you know, little notes from the artists and things. So it's it's nice that whilst we're doing this um, via Zoom, we can still see that sort of stuff through, through the book. Um, I, I just thought it was a really nice I'm touch. Glad, I'm glad you enjoyed that, that part of it because, um, you know, I enjoyed putting it in and and um and also laying it out and making it look interesting as well and feel sort of slightly scrapbook like but at the same time you still want it to feel like it's been designed so yeah. and being a photographer as well as there's, there's obviously a lot of great photography in there that's that's never been published you know just looking at them just just flicking through the book now the images of of kim wilde near the start you know those little little slides and things and they're, they're great pictures aren't they well she was great bless her she really was she was um you know got to know her through being at, temp, uh, at top of the pops, actually, so even before I, before I was designing, and I'd gone to top of the pops while I was working at Stiff Records. Um, I think I talked about it in the book, actually. You know, I was carrying Temple Tudor's chainmail, yeah, sorts of a thousand men, and, and Kim was on doing Kids in America, and um, she was friendly with Bob Kingston, who was the guitarist in Temple Tudor, and. Um, we got friendly as well and just um yeah so kim was great i mean she was really supportive and you know just she, a she was a lot of fun as well so we always had a laugh and we'd go to gigs together and but she just said oh come take some pictures you can do my tour tour program and you can do my t-shirts and then so it was just lovely it was you know for someone that didn't know anything about anything which was me at that point because i hadn't had any training of any of any kind um, it was great and it was just a real kind of, it gave me a real boost, you know, to know that someone like that put her faith in me. So it was, that was great. What is interesting as well is that it, while you were at the start of your career, so was she and, and the photographer you worked with on those sleeves was also at the start of his career and went on to become massive as well, Anton Corbin. Anton Corbin, yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 I didn't know Anton well. I'd sort of kind of brushed shoulders with him at that time and 
drop off stuff and we'd say hi. And I, I know he did some stuff for early on of the, for the Style Council as well. We um, just not not sleeves, but he did a couple of things that we ended up using on posters. Like I think the poster for Money Go Round, like the fly poster for Money Go Round, was one of his images. A fantastic photographer. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. And then I got to work with him again a little bit later on uh, when I worked on Mad Not Mad, the Madness album, because he did the, the, the shoot for that and Ian Wright did the illustration for that. So it was, yeah, it was nice to work with him again. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Anton's one of the greats. That first year as well, so the, the, the year you did the, the Kim Wilde sleeves was, was the first year that you began working with Paul Weller when you did the Beat Surrender cover for the jam, is that right? Uh, uh, Again, that, that, that I had to pass the baton back to Pete Barrett, one of your former uh, guests, because Pete did the sleeve for that, and he knew I was just such a massive jam fan. And again, you know, I, I had just started working for Neville Brody at that time, so I'd left Stiff, but he knew I was a huge jam fan. He said, oh, "Listen, I'm doing the artwork for the new jam single. Do you want to help me?" And so I did. And um, but that was all Pete's work, really. I just got a credit for sort of helping him out doing a I can't remember what I did a bit of lecture setting or something <laughs> but no, that was really kind of Pete that. so um, and Pete's one of you know was a big influence on me and you know, you know we were just part of a little gang back then um, and so he was you know great friends but it was also an, your introduction to Paul Weller, wasn't it? Because he would go on to then the following year with the... Yeah, with I mean, the... I, no, I knew Paul anyway. Um, right. Because I'd met him before and you know, knew I was a big fan. And you know, there was a little sort of circle of us. There was myself and Gary Crowley and Paolo Hewitt. And we'd sort of kind of hang out a little bit, actually, with Paul. So uh, I got to know him a little bit and I'd pop in and see him at the studio when the jam were recording because he'd kind of hear or the jammer working up at Air Studios and kind of think, oh, well, I'll pop in there, it's on Oxford Street. They were always very welcoming and inviting. Um, and uh, yes, I got to know Paul and he knew I was a fan. And, he, and I think the thing with Paul as well, he was very encouraging of youngsters, which I still fell into that bracket at that time. And mm -hmm. so seemed to support, you know, people just starting out. And so that's, I, I, I'd, he'd asked me to design a, couple of things, I think a book of poetry and a Small Faces book, which is not much more than a fanzine, really. And so that was kind of the first thing I did for Paul. And then um, after he split the jam up, he kind of called me down to the studio and asked me if I wanted to uh, you know, work on his new act. So, and, that, and that first single was Speak Like a Child, wasn't it? It was interesting reading about that in the book, actually, because he he had he sort of took on the role of art director, really, didn't he? With oh, those. very much so. Yeah, Paul had a, always had a very, very clear idea of how he wanted things to look. and But at the same time, he was very open to suggestions, and we were sort of discovering a lot of things ourselves at that time, you know, whether it be Blue Note Records or just different kinds of um, photography and imagery and, you know, reference points, you know, photographers like John French, um, obviously David Bailey, um, just people that became, I don't know, I suppose it was like us kind of discovering these things and then wanting to use those ideas ourselves basically so it was sort of little magpies really just borrowing from everywhere so was there a mutual mutual appreciation of uh reed miles work and the, the sort of blue note aesthetic oh or... yeah 100% we loved that stuff you know and you can you know talk about kind of wearing your your heart on your sleeve or your art on your sleeve I mean we really made no bones about kind of borrowing from that perhaps not very well but <laughs> certainly uh the influence was most definitely there and we tried to emulate it as best we could sometimes it worked and other times it didn't it, it largely did work though and i think it worked as well because at that time in the in, in the 80s or you know sort of early to mid 80s that aesthetic that that you were using was very different to everything that was around then because it was all about 
lots of kind of bold lines, dots, and you know, pure modernism, really, the sort of stuff that um, Malcolm Garrett was doing, and to a certain degree, Neville Brody was doing. You know, it was all sort of the design of what, what things might look like in the future, and you were harking back to the 40s, 50s, and 60s with that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, my starting point on everything is the Beatles. So I was just a massive Beatles fan from the get-go. So a lot of their uh, record sleeves were massive influences on me, and even sort of typographically, and even things like I think the, the back of Shouts at the top was uh, copied from Rubber Soul, and um, obviously later on we did the Cost of Loving, which was a sort of an homage to the White Album. Yeah. In sort of a hand-fisted homage, but <laughs> it was nevertheless that that was what was it was always kind of one eye looking back, but one eye looking forward as well. And and for me, Neville Brody, you know, who uh, that's where I really kind of cut my teeth and learnt the ropes, as it were, um, was a massive influence. You know, um, as it were designers like Peter Savile and Malcolm Garrett and Rob O'Connor. You know, there was a lot of big guns doing great work in the uh, in the early eighties, and you know you kind of stood up and you kind of looked at these record sleeves and think, oh, Christ, that's good. You know, oh, I wish I'd done that. Looking back at this, this particularly this early work of yours, it's, it, it isn't naive in lots of ways because it's got a, a sophistication about it. It's got a, a sort of timeless quality to it. And just knowing that, that, that you had such limited tools to work with is incredible, really. And again, going back to the book, being able to see the ideas behind the ideas is is, is a lovely little um, snapshot. I mean, I just imagine now saying to, to graphic designers, uh, you know, studying now, we want you to create a record cover and you're not allowed to use the internet and you're not allowed to use a computer. You know, they'd probably just say, well, it's impossible. <laughs> but, yeah. but people like yourself did that, you know, and came up with these results. And, you know, they're still, they're still fine examples of design 40 years on. Yeah, and I think even if you go further back, you know, as I say, you've got the bees and all those great record sleeves from the 60s and going back even further from the 50s, all those jazz, fantastic record sleeves. I mean, they were all done by hand, yeah. a bit of board, you know. And, yeah. um, I mean, it was a crapshoot to, to a degree as well because you, you know, you would mark up type and backgrounds and with cut various and select various colors and you wouldn't know till you got the proof <laughs> if it worked or not if you could read it and but yeah you know, as i say, it was, it was a good time and it was a creative time i think as well because you certainly with the style council we had such freedom you know every release had multiple formats not into like in today but there'd be a seven inch and a 12 inch and so each format would have a different sleeve so the seven inch would be different to the 12 inch and then we would do posters there'd be a street poster so that would be different to the in-store poster. And then we would do ads in each of the major publications. And there were a lot back then. There'd be you know, Record Mirror, Smash Hits, Enemy, um, Number One magazine. And each of those uh, publications would have a different advert, you know, yeah. different image in the advert. So, and none of which kind of tied into the sort of single image because the seven inch was different to the 12. So it was, we had a bit of fun with it really. Yeah. So. And freedom. No one kind of said, "Oh, what's that? What are you doing?" You know, it was it was just kind of you handed in the artwork. You know, if Paul had, Paul was happy with it, then off it went. No one questioned it. Speaking of different uh, different artwork for the same release, I, I noticed that about the. Um, you did one cover for everything but the girl for each and every one and the seven inch and the twelve inch were completely different designs. Was that Oh I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that at all. Yeah, there was there were different layouts to them and how how did you how were you doing art? Was that all letter set at that point? Were you really set and uh something you know, if you were extravagant you'd get type things typeset. Like headline typesetting was quite expensive. Mm. Um, you know, text typesetting was relatively inexpensive, but headline typesetting um, was pretty expensive. So you, we had a thing called a PNT machine, which was like a very large scale camera. Yeah. So we, you know, I just had type uh, catalogs and you'd photograph the catalog, you know, the, the alphabet, and then you'd cut them up, you know, in old, old school. Yeah. And one example that I remember specifically in the book, there's two examples actually of that, which are very 
clear to me is the Who singles LP that I did. I mean, that was Letra Set. Um, in, the, in the writing all the titles on the front, the song titles on the front was all done with Letra Set. And the Astrid Gilberto thing was taken from a book, you know, just photographing it and cutting up the letters. And yeah, so it was a, uh, and it was a bit very much, you know, a lot of cow gum going on back then. <laughs> cow gum, cardboard, and tracing paper and Letra Set. Yeah, exactly right, yeah. <laughs> So just to go back to that that first Style Council single with the with the um, orange and black, very very minimal approach. That was something that Paul Weller himself wanted. That will have just been done with Letra Set, was it? That the, the self no, that was no, that was you know went through some um, again with one of those books with Paul the font thing and uh, that you couldn't get that. Uh, I think it was Stylo. I think that ironically flare Stylo flare or something like it was called. Salto Flare. Salto Flare, that's yes. the one. Salto Flare, that's it. And, you know, he picked that typeface and um, he just said, I want a plain black sleeve. And I think, you know, the thinking was, you know, I just want to, it's a fresh start. You know, I don't want to give the impression of anything that's come in head. So it's just a fresh start with a name. Mm. And, uh, you know, an easy start for me. <laughs> A lot of the designers at that time had had signature style as well. You could generally tell Peter Savile's work and Malcolm Garrett's work, and could very definitely tell um, Neville Brodie's work. You didn't really seem to have a signature style in so much as that you there was some of the sleeves with the references to the the blue note design. The only thing that I can see where there's a sort of visual link was between the sleeve for. Um, Snap by the Jam and uh, Sugar Bridge by the Bluebells, where they've both got a sort of similar aesthetic. With no, their... that's not, yeah, that, actually, that, 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 that that's true. But I guess I didn't, you know, I was just learning at that point. You know, for me, it was kind of like going to art school, but because I had no training other than, you know, working with Neville and my time in the Stiff Records art department, which was really you know, just being thrown in at the deep end. Um, <laughs> It was it was really just kind of as I said it was kind of a bit of a sponge so you'd pick up things and you'd, I'd be influenced by everything really as I say from Neville to uh, Peter Savile to Malcolm Garrett to you know Rob O'Connor and Style which just influenced by all these things but as well as you know the big guns from yesteryear so um, um, yes yeah, Barney Bubbles yeah Barney Bubbles was another big influence and I never really met him properly but I, I he'd come into stiff every now and again and he was very quiet um but even when i did um what did i do i did a couple of blue note things that was had some cut out fabric on it, it was for blue bop and um a couple of other ones and that was sort of a leaf out of it was half sort of peter savile half barley bubbles really but you must have been doing something right because nearly all of your clients ended up being long-term relationships weren't they you, you you didn't do many one-off sleeves you tended no, to i mean you mentioned everything but the girl you know that was their first single and they were, they were absolutely thrilled with it but i must have lost my number after that <laughs> um, <laughs> um but no it, it, joking aside no i've been very fortunate i mean someone pointed out to me the other day with the stuff with the style council that it's, it's very unusual for one designer to do a band's entire career yeah. um so I've been very fortunate, you know, that worked with Paul for the best part of 30 years. So um, you know, very fortunate and, you know, to work with George all those years as well was great. So yeah, very lucky. And madness as well. Yeah, madness. Yeah, I, you know, was, madness. I was a fan of theirs before I even knew who they were because I'd, I'd seen them supporting the Pretenders at the Lyceum um, before they had a record out. And they just blew the roof off the joint. You know, they were mm. unbelievable. And so I was a fan from that second onwards and bought the first single the day it came out. And, um, you know, two-tone and then going to work at Stiff, which was just about the time that absolutely their second album came out. So I think Baggy Chouse had already been out, but Embarrassment was the single, uh, as I recall. I remember very early on, I was working in the post room and you know, Suggs bowled in and kind of, I am Suggs and sort of introduced himself, which was lovely. And you know, I've always stayed friendly with those guys and I ended up renting an office from them. Uh, not renting an office, they gave me an office, um, <laughs> um, which was out in Islington. 
and I ended up doing Mad Not Mad and a couple of other bits and pieces for them. And then, you know, some, you know, 35 years later, Carl calls me from Spain and says, I've got this solo album. Would you, you know, thinking about you, would you be up for doing the sleeve? Which I was absolutely thrilled about because it's such a beautiful record that a comfortable man. And um, it was just so nice to get that call after I hadn't seen Carl for, I don't know, 25 years or something, but he sent me such a lovely text. And it was, I was thinking about your happy, smiling face. And you really value that. You just think, oh, well, it's nice that people think that way about you. And I love doing that sleeve. And um, I look mad, not mad, I love doing it. Again, that's got a kind of Beatles, not so much with the Beatles thing, because that was... Anton's, but the sort of typography I think was sort of slightly hard days night, even though it's very minimal. It's, yeah. you know, so there's always something going on. How did that creative process work though? Because you were saying earlier about working with, with uh, Paul Weller quite closely, and I know later on when you were working with George Michael, there was a similar sort of relationship. But with Madness, there were quite a few people in the band. <laughs> How did you negotiate the creativity? Well, you know what? That was a tricky one because at that point when I did Mad Not Mad, Mike Barson had left. And so I think prior to that, um, there were seven of them. So there was always, there would always be a, you know, a majority, you know, just because it was an odd number. Yeah. So when they were down to six, you know, you just, it was quite hard to get them to, to agree on it. <laughs> so, uh, um, but lovely guys, and I was, you know, a huge fan all the way through, and I was, you know, absolutely thrilled. You know, that, that's one of my favourite album covers that I've done, Mad Not Mad. You know, A, because I think it's a great album, I think the sleeve turned out nice, it's nice to work with Anton Corbin, but more importantly, to work with Ian Wright, the illustrator, who was my mate, who I'd shared a, a um, studio with, I put, uh, I say studio, a very small room, um, up at the face offices after I kind of went freelance after working for Neville. So we mentioned George Michael earlier and you, from 1990 onwards, you worked with George a lot on on a lot of stuff. So how, how did that begin? How did you get to know George? Was that just an accident or did you deliberately put yourself in his way? Um, I got to know George. Uh, I've met him very early on, very briefly with Gary Crowley. You know, sort of, sort of that kind of mid late 80s, we sort of hang out a lot. He lived just up the road from me and um, you know, we'd go out for lunch and dinners on a regular basis and we'd, you know, we'd go out to nightclubs and um, yeah, kind of got to know him pretty, pretty well. And it was literally on one of going out for dinner locally in Belsize Park in, in North West London that you know, he dropped me home. And on the way home, I said to him, you know, he was talking about the new LP. And I said, have you thought about the cover? And he said, no. And I said, well, listen, I'd love to help you. And he goes, oh, yeah, I don't know why I didn't think of that. Yeah, we should do it together. It'll be fun. And that's sort of how it started, really. And looking at the book, it was fascinating to see your, your original designs for, for Listen Without Prejudice, because obviously George ha had a vision in mind of, of certainly not including a picture of himself. That's right, yeah. Because um, George had come off the back of a massive, massive record. Um, obviously, you know, Wham! was a massive thing, but the Faith album had kind of elevated him to sort of... You know, this massive kind of superstardom, and so um, the original idea for the sleeve was just to do a plain blue sleeve. You know, and I'd obviously been around, around the block with the Star Council with the plain orange sleeve, so yeah. I thought, oh, <laughs> do that. You know, <laughs> so um, we did it. Um, and again, George was very specific about the shade of blue and this, that and the other. So we went ahead and got our own proofs done, not through the record company. Um, so the proofs came back and we tried it in blue, we tried it in white, with text, without text, and uh, without a title and with a title. And so we decided on the blue with just an AE. That was going to be the one that was the, you know, the AE of Michael as a kind of dick fox. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, and so he decided that was that's what he wanted for the album cover so we sort of dispatched it to his american manager based out in los angeles rob kahane and um you know a day later you know the fedex package arrives i get a call and it's his assistant the lovely francis saying hey i've got rob for you and so oh great hi rob and you know first thing he says to me is are you fucking kidding me <laughs> <laughs> and i said oh and he said you can't this isn't gonna you know this isn't gonna fly you know great you know he was very convincing he said you know yeah certain record stores wouldn't stock it and it's his career aside and all these sorts of things as far as so you know i went back to george and said the good news is it arrived <laughs> but it, just, it didn't quite go down as well as uh we hoped and i gave him all the reasons that rob had said and i think you know it kind of made sense so we went back to the drawing board which was a drawing board back in those days and came up with the idea which we ended up using which was the Ouija thing which was sort of born very simply out of I bought him a coffee table book of 20th century photography which and as I said before you know coffee table books weren't you know they weren't as readily available uh, as they are today um so it's not like there's a million, we're a million of them anyway. So we were just flicking through that for some sort of inspiration. And we saw the Ouija photo of the beach scene, you know, taken in 1940 at Coney Island in New York. Yeah. Um, and we both looked at each other and went, oh, that's the, that's the album cover. So we acquired the rights to it. And, you know, it turned out to be a great sleeve, I think. Again, he didn't want his um, name on it, and which is... At that point, was fine. Everyone was happy to sticker it, and it was just a great record. It's just a, for me. I think with record sleeves, and I've said this before, actually, that record sleeves kind of become iconic when the records are really great records. Yeah, it's sort of they go hand in hand. It's ironic as well, isn't it, that by by going backwards and using an old image, you you kind of future proofed it in lots of ways because it is a very timeless sleeve. Whereas if they had gone with the original artwork, the design of that does sort of say more 1990s doesn't yeah, it? No, I, yeah absolutely right it's funny i was talking to uh, i was on another uh show um david hepworth and mark ellen and they said uh, mark's uh sorry david said something interesting he said you know with books you know every every sort of five years a book jacket gets changed even if it's a classic you know there'll be a new run and they'll do a different book jacket he says that never happens with music music always kind of stays the same, you know, if it'll be reissued or remastered or repackaged, but it's always got the same sleeve. And I think, you know, that's a sort of a, you know, a testimony, I guess, to how important album art is. I'm not saying that in reference to my work. I'm just saying that in reference to it in yeah. general, how, how people hold it so dear. And I think people would take exception if all of a sudden, oh, there's a different cover for Beatles for sale. Or there's a different <laughs> cover for, you know, Wildwood or whatever it is, you know, that it's um the two are inextricably linked aren't they i think you know i think particularly as as pop fans as consumers when when you bought an album particularly a vinyl record it was always about the the whole experience wasn't it you'd put the record on and you'd sit and read the liner notes and read the lyrics and all that stuff yeah i couldn't couldn't agree more He went from one extreme to the other though didn't he visually because with with that album where there was the sort of adamant that he didn't want to be on the cover then later on it went to purely being about photographs of him with no type as well how, how did that happen was that a very de- deliberate of, thing of, on the singles of that album yes yeah um that's a good question i don't know what was the i think because he wanted the, the singles i think he realised that you know the people that buy singles are like fans, and you know that they want. But for, as an album, he just wanted it to be like a body of work that just listen to the music kind of thing. And so by the time the singles came along, the, ironically, the first single was "Praying for Time," and again that had a black sleeve. Yeah. Um, but all the other ones, "Freedom," um, "Heal the Pain," "Went for That Day," that they all had picture sleeves, and again, but with no type on it. So. Um, 
yeah, I think it was just something because I think he, he felt he'd made his point. I think. And of course, at the time, you were also it didn't have as much impact, but we we have to mention it. You were also working with with the other member of Wham on his solo stuff. I did Andrew's first actually. Yeah. Uh, you know, Andrew and I had become mates again in the eighties, and he was. I remember he was living out in Encino. Uh, in California and uh, went out. I was out there on a the, on the holiday and he said, I'll come over to the house and let's talk about my my album. And um, I really enjoyed working on that actually. It was, a, you know, he's a good fun guy and it was, you know, the album didn't do as well as perhaps he had hoped. And But it was just a really nice, great album title, Son of yes. Album. Yeah. <laughs> Son of Album, that's one of the all time greats as far as I'm concerned, title wise. But um, yeah, I think he was, you know, very, at that point he was very much uh, getting the sharp end of the stick out of the George and Andrew relationship, sort of creative-wise, and, and it's sort of unfairly so because you know, Wham wouldn't have been Wham without Andrew. There would have been no Wham without Andrew because you know Andrew was a big part of that. Another person that George worked with um, was Elton John, and you designed the the cover of. Uh... Don't let the sun go down on me. And I, yeah. what I thought was interesting about that was that you know you've got two two artists who are instantly recognisable, but for the record cover, it's just their names. How was that a very deliberate decision? It was a deliberate decision. Yeah, I mean, we didn't. I don't. We, there, there was no at that point. They hadn't. They hadn't done a photo shoot or anything. And I would never have used two separate images. Um, and it just, it was such a classy record. He just wanted something. It doesn't even say Don't Let the Sun Go, it just says George Michael and Elton yes, John. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it was such a beautiful version. And uh, you know, I've got you know, very fond memories of that time because George and I were both living in Los Angeles. Then just remember him, him hit, you know, playing that in his house um, when he got the mastered track. And just, it was one of those things where he was just kind of looking out over. Coldwater Canyon, which is what his house looked over, and indeed the kind of sun was setting, and it was just one of those lovely moments. And you, you could see how it was almost like it was, you know, the teenage him kind of listening to an Elton John record. Mm. In this case, he just happened to be duetting with him, so it was, it was a lovely moment. That actually, I can picture it like it was yesterday. It's nice in the book reading about those stories as well, like because you talk in the book about meeting up with um, with Elton John as well, and there's 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 the sort of um, the very candid photography that you've taken of George when you've just been out for dinner or driving in the car and stuff, and I think that that... yeah, no, it's just yeah, there were such lovely times, and you know, it was just you know we were just hanging out. I mean, I. I been friends with Karen and Sarah for a long time from Bananarama at that point and we were all sort of hanging out together and it was just a really you know lovely time we all lived in kind of close proximity in North and we would just go out and have a laugh we'd go out for you know dinners locally and then we'd go back and play silly games you know whether it's Trivial Pursuit or Charades or you know the pictures show the sort of love and laughter that was going on back then I hope anyway. Well, it certainly made me laugh. I was reading the uh, the bit about being in the Ivy restaurant when Ringo Starr walked in. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. That made me laugh out loud and Lionel yeah. Richie. You can always have a laugh with him. You know, he was always the first one to kind of, A, take the piss out of himself, but also take the piss out of you. And, you know, and, and it was kind of very level playing field in that department. And we always had a laugh. I remember... This sounds terribly name droppy, but I remember once we went to um, where did we go? Oh yeah, Janet Jackson's house for dinner, and um, it was just her and her husband uh, at the time, and George and myself. And she lived in Malibu, right on the, the Pacific Coast Highway there. And I'd never met her before, and George had met her before a couple of times. So we went there for dinner and. We were just sort of taking the piss out of each other, and you could see she was so taken aback, bless her, that someone <laughs> should just take the piss. You know, it was just, you know, because she kept saying to her husband, Can you believe what he just said there? <laughs> you know, so we were just, and we sort of, you know, so he was that guy, and I think he was, he was very happy to A, take the piss, and also appreciated a good gag. We the people. 
So jumping a bit more more into the noughties, really, you began working with an, another band that you had a sustained creative relationship with, and that would be Oasis. Yes, indeed. Um, again, uh, I first met them when I was living out in Los Angeles, and it was Pete's old partner in crime, who, who he was at art school with, Nick Eagle, yes. uh, uh, was directing a video. Uh, for Supersonic, uh, as I recall. And um, Nick said, oh, come down. To oh, no, Pete was in town. That was it. Pete was in town. He was staying with me. And so we went down to the video shoot. And because, you know, by that point in time, you know, I'd been working with Paul for many years, not just, you know, the Style Council had um, been and gone. And I was now working on Paul's solo records and, and living in Los Angeles at the same time. And anyhow, I remember saying to Paul, oh, I'm going down to this video shoot with Pete tomorrow. And he goes, oh, tell him you're a mate of mine, you know. And I did. And it was sort of, you know, kind of hit it off with them from the get-go, really. We had a kind of a... How uh, involved were they with the, with the creative process? Were you given carte blanche there or were they kind of well, involved? Not carte blanche, no, but they were very open to ideas. And it was, you know, Noel was very hands-on and Noel would lead as you can imagine. And um, we had an idea. He asked me when I moved back from Los Angeles and we'd already done, I'd already been involved in, got to know them better. And we were sort of mates at that point. And I just called up one day, said, listen, you're off for doing the next leave. And I thought, great. So and he said, oh, come to the South of France where they were recording and let, have a chat about it and you know it's a great setting the chateau maybe we can do something there and i wanted to work with andrew mcpherson the photographer who's a you know was an old pal and great 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 photographer and um so we had this idea i took out some sort of source books and some things to kind of go through and one of the ideas was to copy a very famous uh picture that R renee Bury took of these five silhouettes Five people walking across a rooftop in San Paolo or somewhere like that yeah. in silhouette. So that was the original idea. And then, you know, Noah and I went out to uh, this chateau, which was just high above the hills, above Cannes in the south of France. And uh, Liam was out there already. And, you know, we get there and Noel says, Oh, you can have Bone it to him. And I said, Oh, well, has he gone home? And he said, No, he's left the band. And it's just like, Oh, <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. So something's going on there, and then um, very shortly after that, Griggsy left. So we didn't want to do a slit. We we we'd set up the idea of doing this rooftop shot. We thought let's do it in New York, and Andrew McPherson was on board. And then it was just like, oh, hang on a minute, we haven't got a band. So how are we going to do this? We can't have you know the people that played. It. He didn't. He didn't want to put Andy Bell and Gem on the cover because they haven't played on the record. Mm. So um, we had the idea of doing the idea, but instead having five kids playing football. And so five school kids. So we shot these kids playing football and then we dropped it in on Photoshop as we could do by then on the roof of a building uh, on the, as part of the Manhattan skyline. And then um, Andrew, well, prior to that, obviously, Andrew photographed in an old, very old-fashioned way, he photographed that same setup for 18 hours from sort of, you know, dusk till dawn. Wow. Um, taking a frame every, you know, few minutes. And he was literally, you know, it was a very elaborate photo shoot. I think he hired a floor of a vacant building, you know, in New York, and he was sort of hanging out the edge taking these pictures and did an absolutely beautiful, beautiful job. And uh, then came back and he layered it all. And so you had some bits of the daylight, some bits of the nighttime and lovely colours of sunset and sunrise. And you know, it was a really, really beautiful album cover. And yeah. all the subsequent singles that followed, which was um, Who Feels Love and Sunday Morning Cool, and uh, all had elements of the sleeve 
some way. So it felt like a campaign actually, because the initial single was Go Let It Out, and that was just a close up of the kids playing football. Yeah. And the promo sleeve was an even closer, closer up kid. So it was just like you could kind of see it all. And then the various sleeves had the reflection of that image in one thing or another. And so, uh, yeah, it worked out really well. Really, really enjoyed that. Uh, I've that. not actually noticed on the on the album cover on the standing on the shoulder of giants. I've never noticed the the, the kids playing football on. No, the it's, I mean, it's tiny. So, yeah, but, you know. But what think, fan- fantastic attention to detail, though. Yeah, it was just a way of trying to do something, and you know, I think uh, we were sort of flying by the seat of our pants a little bit because everything was booked in and the album was due to go and, and we knew we wanted to do this type of sleeve but we just didn't have the band at that point. You were working with some incredible talent at that time as well. I mean, we didn't say it earlier, but went with the Paul Weller solo stuff. You'd started working with, with Peter Blake and David Bailey, hadn't you? And then obviously with Oasis, you, you continued that link. How was it working with them? Were you, were you daunted by their presence? So Paul and I were, you know massive or are massive Beatles fans and we just thought God, wouldn't it be great to get Peter Blake to do maybe a poster or something for the next record and and I think really I th- we just wanted to meet him that was the thing so <laughs> I didn't think I don't, I don't think either of us thought it would amount to anything because he was Peter Blake and so anyway we went to meet with him I think Paul had just played Glastonbury actually that's that weekend and I was I was still living in Los Angeles Los Angeles and I'd, I'd flown in for what well, happened to be in England to coincide with that and then the following Monday we went to Peter's house in Chiswick and um, um, we just got chatting and he just seemed so amenable and he said he'd love to do whatever we needed so we said well listen if he's up for doing anything let's get him to do the front you know and uh, and so we had the idea well, Peter said, let's make it a collage, but have this interesting idea of a child holding a picture of the older Paul, which is great. So obviously Peter painted that in this beautiful painting. Mm. And then we all kind of chipped in our bits and pieces for the collage, you know. Uh, um, so it was a very collaborative thing. And that's, you know, that, that was the first of three record sleeves that I had the pleasure and the good fortune of working with. Peter Blake on we did an Oasis uh, collection Stop the Clocks in 2006 I think and then last year I worked with him again on the latest Who record so yeah really lovely guy and um, absolute pleasure to work alongside and you know really enjoy his company and uh, David Bailey and again I'm very fortunate to have you know the opportunity I think I went with actually first time I met him Paul was being photographed he said, oh, I'm meeting Bailey tomorrow. I'm having a picture saying, do you want to come along? And I thought, God, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll do that. <laughs> so, um, and so it was fun. We just ended up having a laugh, actually. It was one of those things where he says, God, he's a, you know, he's a good egg. And he's, you know, he's just sort of giggling all the way through. And he, he took, seemed to take a bit of a shine to me. And it's very, I don't know, I don't know. He's just, a, he sort of hit it off, as it were. And, um, I admire your uh, your front as well in the book where you talk about uh, getting him to take a picture of oh, you. I had a camera. Just my little point and shoot. And I just said, I'll oh, do us a favour to you know, take a picture of me and Paul. And which he did. And needless to say, it was the best of the pictures that came out. Um, yeah, no, he was a good guy. And then uh, when we did Stop the Clocks, actually, um, because Peter Blake was doing the cover, um, you know, Oasis being, you know, a great British act i just thought why not see if bailey would be up for you know doing portraits of the band so uh, which he was so we had fun doing that you've worked with some some of the best and you know that it's it's a testament to 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 your skills as a designer that you've been able to get these people on side with you because they obviously respect your work as well yeah no i've been very fortunate in having you know these sort of long-standing relationships with people with artists and and with your creatives as well i mean I worked with Lawrence Watson, who's a fantastic photographer for many, many years, you know, working on Paul's solo career and also a fair chunk of the Oasis stuff. And, you know, as I say, you know, sort of cutting my teeth with Neville Brody and then sort of brushing shoulders, albeit briefly, with the kind of Peter Blakes and the 
David Bailey's in as well. It's you know been very very lucky. And you've had dinner with Janet Jackson. Don't forget that. <laughs> dinner with Janet Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> so so just with the book then with so much so much to work with. How was it editing forty years worth of work down to two hundred and seventy five pages? Well, um, that's, a, that's a good question. I just wanted it to flow really. So um, not everything's in there and. You kind of want to put stuff in that that I'm happy with, and I mean the the lion's share of everything is in there, um, but it was just it wanted to make it flow. So I wanted to, you know, the text was something that I really wanted to be sure worked, and um, you know, treat it like a proper book rather than, as you said, like a catalogue. I wanted it to feel like it was a book that told a bit of a story, and at the same time, you know, gave a little glimpse of the sort of the, the workings behind some of these sleeves and the love the love shows in it though i think you know it's the attention to detail i think um as a designer myself just looking at it you can see that you've spent a lot of time considering the layout and the design of it and even those um those pantone 151 end papers that you've put in there are... yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah with something like this you sort of get one shot at it so you really want it to be the best that, that it can be but it did all come back very quickly. As I say, we, we um, put it on Kickstarter in July and, you know, you know, it's the end of November, the book's out. So mm. um, we're in December, but, you know, it's, um, it's a very fast turnaround. And I think that's <clears throat> part of the beauty of self-publishing as well as it can kind of get your slot and just do it. So um, can um, people can people still buy the book? Yes, but it, yeah, they can do. Yes, it's just available through my website, which is nemperor.com. It's emperor with an N in front. Um, yeah, they can, but yeah, thank God it's, you know, it's, I've only done a thousand copies. It's only a limited run. They're all signed, they're all numbered. So is the Nemperor page the best place where people can get in touch with you and see your work? And is, yeah. is that your business yeah. page? Yeah, there's a few bits and pieces on there. It's not as an, as an, an elaborate site as perhaps. Uh, it should be, but it gives you an idea for sure. And you're also on Twitter, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Just at Halfon, H-A-L-F-O-N. And I think Diamond Halfon covers on Instagram and Facebook. So thanks again for joining me and uh, good luck with, uh, with selling the rest of them. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.